Hi everyone, welcome to the Slice of Life podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Novia. And I'm Alex, and we'll be your host for today. Slice of Life podcast is brought to you by Project Happy Apples, a palliative care project based at NUS Medicine, aiming to spark conversations about death and promote how palliative care, a team-based approach, can improve the quality of life of those with a life-limiting and life-threatening illness. All children should be loved and cared for. Indonesian-born Singapore resident Dina Chandra, with a non-medical background, founded Rachel House in Indonesia in 2006. They provide palliative care for children from marginalized communities in Indonesia, living with life-threatening and life-limiting illnesses, especially cancer or HIV. They started out as a three-letter inpatient hospice and provide home palliative care to more than 3,700 children now and their family members. They also provide training to more than 9,000 medical professionals and community members from 2006 until now. As a leader in home-based palliative care, Lina and her team at Rachel House are transforming the palliative care ecosystem in Indonesia as we speak. It all started after Lina walked with her friend Rachel on her journey battling and eventually succumbing to cancer. Join us to hear about the inspiring story of Rachel House and Lina's mission to transform healthcare through compassion in Indonesia and beyond. Hi Lina, how are you doing? Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Nokia. We're so excited to have you today on the Slice of Life podcast to get to know you better and the wonderful community and support that you have provided for children and families in Indonesia that is Rachel House. Let's get right into it. Hi Lina, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Where do you grow up? What was it like getting educated and working in different parts of the world? I grew up here in Singapore. Uh, I was born in Indonesia, in Medan. And I moved here when I was about 11 and uh, started schooling here. And most of my initial education was done here. And then I did some of that in Australia. The larger part of my work life was, while based in Singapore, was throughout Southeast Asia. I started my career as a banker and stumbled along into uh, the world of hospice starting in 2006. Great, thank you so much. It's been quite a journey in different parts of the world. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about Rachel, your friend who passed away from cancer, and also your inspiration behind Rachel House in the first place. That's right. The inspiration for starting Rachel House was my experience looking after Rachel Clayton in the final few years of her life. She had cancer for quite a long time and the last two years of her time with cancer I had the privilege and the honor of journeying that last patch with her. What taught me most about Rachel's journey was the fact that there is still a lot of life left in someone even though they are diagnosed with life-threatening illness and Rachel was an incredible sunshine for many of us And she was surrounded always with loving friends. And uh, she was the life among a lot of our community. And also that's because Rachel was incredibly blessed in terms of money and friendship and love. And so after she died, I used to wonder how would people live their last days if they didn't have all of the blessings that she had? And that took me on a curiosity journey, nothing more than curiosity of how people live. And according to Rachel, she needed a lot of funds, an incredible amount of insurance. 
And I started looking at children in particular, and I started traveling around a lot of the hospitals in the countries that I used to cover in banking. And that included India, Thailand, and then Indonesia. What I saw in the public hospitals were frightening. What I witnessed in the final public hospital that I visited in Indonesia was impressive enough for me to be haunted by a lot of the crying of the children. It was a children's ward in the largest children's hospital in Indonesia. Wall to wall, there are just children screaming in pain. And the doctor who was accompanying me said that the reason why they were in pain or the reason why they were screaming is because painkillers were expensive. And it was uh, $10 a pop. And in my mind at that time, $10 a shot, I can do that. I can start a hospice, 60 bed, and all of these children would have no problem coming into the hospice and their parents would not be sleeping under the bed, which was the case in that hospital. And these kids would not be staring out into the rusty iron grill windows when they could sit up. And so that started that sort of thought, well, I can do that. But I didn't, I didn't move immediately. I just thought somebody else would do it. And those screaming children continued to be in my ears until I looked up and sort of said to the universe, all right, I'll do it. You can switch the sound off. And as I said that, the screaming children's voice was actually stopped. That motivated me initially to think of maybe purchasing a piece of land, spending a year of my life, figuring out how to build a hospice. And then the rest of it, I thought at that time, would just naturally come into place. Surely there are doctors who would be able to administer pain management and uh, surely there would be nurses trained to do that. And so my role would be just a project managed construction of a 60 bed. But it wasn't to be the case. What I found when we started recruiting the first batch of nurses, what I found was uh, palliative care didn't exist in Indonesia. Painkillers, although they exist, morphine, they had never been used. So it's not so much that painkillers are expensive. It's just no one was trained to use it. And pain was not something that doctors were trained to identify, to recognize, and to treat. And so what was supposed to be a one-year project of construction turned out to be now 15 years of the journey in changing mindset, turning heart to see pain, and hoping that by the time I'm finished with this, when I die, that we will have a health system where no children should ever, would ever have to live or die in pain, which is the vision of Rachel House. Thank you so much for that. I think it's really interesting you mentioned at the start how Rachel, your friend, was really fortunate to have all the resources available to help her die with dignity and in a peaceful way. And, you know, a lot of us don't necessarily have that around the world. And it's really great that you're driven enough to do something about that. And that's something that's really admirable. Aside from that, I guess you mentioned quite a bit about how doctors in Indonesia weren't so accepting towards palliative care and to treating pain, which is, I guess, one of the huge obstacles that you must have faced. So I was wondering, how do you actually get through to them? How do you train these healthcare professionals in Indonesia to really understand what it means to provide palliative care and to really treat children how they should be treated and not let them die in pain? Going back to the first part of what you said, that I witnessed Rachel being blessed with the resources. One of the incredible learnings also, if I were to think back, of course, when I was going through that with her, I didn't realize that that was another credible or an important part of anyone living with an illness is the, the security of a community. Because you can have all the money that you want or you have, but without somebody taking care of you, 
and somebody that really cared for you, you're still alone. And there's nothing worse than being alone when you're sick. There's nothing worse than being alone when you're in pain. And that's the voice that we take to the doctors in Indonesia. Not only doctors, but nurses and caregivers and healthcare professionals within the hospital system. Too often, I find doctors, when they're in training, come into the industry with a heart, wanting to help, wanting to heal, wanting to soothe. But medical schools and scientific knowledge seems to be determined in training that heart out of healthcare professionals for whatever reason, for the reason of we have no time. You should not be too involved with your patients or you should have a professional boundaries. But all of that just goes to create a robot out of us and forgetting that connectivity, that connection, that human connection soothes and builds trust. And once trust is built, a patient is more likely to actually listen and trusting the advice of a doctor. And a doctor finds it a lot easier to communicate when a patient trusts him or her. It's a human relationship. Why should medical field be any different? Why should a medical relationship between a doctor and a nurse and a patient be any different? So that's what we bring to palliative care training in Indonesia. We first talk about the stories. And when we do the training, we talk about the journey of a patient who was screaming in pain, didn't want to do all of the things that the doctor had told him or her, and turning that to when our nurses come into the home space and sitting down and listening and asking, what is it that really troubled you now? What is it that is the utmost of concern for you today? And how can we do baby steps in coming to bridge some of the difficulties that you have? That's one. On the other side, of course, is to when we start getting referral from doctors, because that's the first step, right? So they will refer the first patient to us, especially in pediatric. You hear a lot of doctors will talk about how pediatricians are very reluctant to let go of their patients. And that's because patients have developed that kind of love for their doctors. And parents have gotten comfortable with this particular pediatrician. And the pediatrician has also developed a love for the patient. And so they become very protective of this child. Now, so when a patient is referred to Rachel House, we make sure that the doctor understands that the doctor remains in charge of that patient. We are just the extension of care at home for this patient. And after our nurses would leave the patient's house at each time, they would actually update the doctor to make sure that he or she is updated with the latest situation of the patient. Why do we do that? We do that, one, to make sure that the doctor doesn't actually feel like we're encroaching on his or her space. But the other thing also is to make sure that if the child was to go back to the hospital for some emergency care or whatever, everyone in the hospital is updated with his or her latest condition, what tweaks in medication that we've actually done because we want to make sure that the patient suffers as little as possible because of the inefficiency of the communication between two teams. So that collaboration is really important. And with that, doctors begin to trust us. And I think that's when trust between the hospital team and the home-based team is built, then a much smoother collaboration happens. And that's how we've built relationship with all of the 12 hospitals now that we actually work with. And none of these hospitals initially had palliative care. Today, almost all of them have some sort of palliative care understanding and there are about three hospitals with palliative care teams. It took a long time. It took a different language. It took a change of mindset. But most of all, it took the opening of a heart. Maybe about six out of 10 times, it took us opening the hearts of the nurses first. 
because they are there daily, day in, day out with the patients. They see a lot more of the pain. Doctors come in and out, they write a prescription and then they scoot, right? <laughs> Even when the patients continue to scream, doctors don't hear the scream, but the nurses do. So it begins with uh, opening the hearts of the nurses. Thank you, Lina. You brought up a lot of good points about building the trust between the doctors and the patients, especially the love that pediatricians have for their patients and also the collaboration between the nurses and the doctors. We also understand that Rachel House is one of, if not the first palliative care facility in Indonesia. So how difficult was it to access palliative care in Indonesia before Rachel House was established? So there still is one at the Rumasakit Surabaya. So they're the first team, but they're hospital-based. And like all hospital-based, perhaps doctors don't usually sort of see it as their role to basically train everyone and make sure that everyone does it. So it remains in that unit and it hardly sort of moved outside that. But a lot of the Singapore palliative care team at that time started training that particular hospital. So when we started in 2006, we decided to come to Singapore to ask for help. And they referred us to Singapore International Foundation, which started that whole three-year training. Being the first at that time in the country where the laws around palliative care did not exist, when we started Rachel House, we called the Ministry of Health, asking for the license. At that time, because we were still going to build a structure, so a structure needed a license to provide care. And we had the Ministry of Health say, hospice? You mean hospital, right? <laughs> we're like no and then we said you know it's palliative care palia what <laughs> so that was how we started and then in 2007 in december first rules governing palliative care was written and published by the ministry of health but till this day the operational guidelines have not been published doctors have not been trained medical schools have no curriculum on palliative care and the national insurance doesn't cover palliative care, but at least the language of palliative care among doctors and nurses now is not foreign. It's beginning to be accepted, but I think the whole concept, the acceptance of palliative care has got to come from also the acceptance of the existence of death and that death happens. And I think, even if the public seems to accept death, the last party to always accept death are the doctors and the nurses. Because I think it's so often that the medical fields tend to associate death with failure. For sure, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and so the discussion of death with patients then becomes something of, it's coupled with shame, coupled with failure, coupled with, I'm so sorry, I failed even if they didn't say it. The communication about the prognosis, even if you're not sort of looking through the crystal glass, you still have to talk about it because parents and children and young people deserve the time to prepare themselves and anyone deserves the time to prepare themselves. The other side of that is also the education of patients, the empowerment of patients. Often we come to the presence of doctors almost as if we have been completely disempowered. This is made worse by all of the jargons that doctors, people in the healthcare field actually talk with. Medications are prescribed without being explained to the patients why. And often chemotherapy protocols are being given without actually discussing with the patients what all of the side effects entail. 
the habit and the way we have carried on in health system have in some way contributed to the disempowerment of patients and therefore the over-reliance on doctors and driving doctors to feel incredible guilt when they can't solve the problem as it, because they've been put up there as, as a god that needs to solve everything. So that, that needs to change. And I think we at Rachel House look to bring that conversation more present in Indonesia. And part of the 10 series of discussions that we have this time is also to bring in mindfulness. And because it's only when we're mindful of our own guilt can we actually talk about that guilt. But if we don't know that we're actually feeling guilty, then we just layer on top of that and continue to actually treat the patient without considering what is clearly in front of us. Yeah, for sure. I think you raise a really good point about how healthcare needs to move forward, being that patients are actually empowered to make their own decisions and to really understood what's going on with their treatment plan, with their goals and doctors and healthcare professionals should involve patients and their families both to be part of the discussion. And this can really help them to understand their illness better and to perhaps be more prepared when death comes, which yeah. is, you know, such an inevitable part of their illness and life in general. So yeah, I really hope that's the direction moving forward for, for Indonesia or Singapore or just the rest of the world. Yes, absolutely. I think we've spent too long blaming each other you hear the healthcare professionals blaming patients when they are difficult patients and non-compliant. And we hear patients blaming doctors and nurses and it cannot continue. Thank you so much for the insight from both of you. We also wanted to find out how the pandemic and lockdowns have actually affected your team in providing palliative care to the children in Indonesia. I often look at the decimation of healthcare and the health system in Indonesia and marvel at Singapore and think how fortunate are we living in Singapore when we look at the incredible crater that's been created by the pandemic in Indonesia. And just to give you an example, in the beginning, I mean, March marked the first, apparently the first two cases in Jakarta, March 2020. Almost immediately, other home care services that were available for adult patients with cancer, almost overnight, they were shut down. And then the shelter for children living with cancer, because Indonesia is vast, so a lot of the children would come into the capital city of Jakarta for treatment. And these shelters offer a place for the children and one adult to live in while they're undergoing treatment at the hospital nearby. And almost overnight, these centers closed down to new patients. Now, what it means for a lot of patients, at that time, we still didn't realize, we, we hadn't realized what the impact would be 18 months from then. But let's take that topic and realize that one, all of the ancillary services were shut down, except for Rachel House. We ourselves actually took some time to recalibrate. Initially, we pulled back, everyone worked from home. We tried to do team A, team B. Nurses took all of the medications and everything they needed to go home to their own home and then left from home to provide care for patients who really needed them. But everyone else were being monitored by telephone, so telemedicine and video calls started. Remind me to come back to that video call, but 18 months down the road or even almost two years now down the road, we look at where we are today. 
many of our patients with cancer referred to us by the public hospitals are coming with more grave symptoms, more complex symptoms than we have ever seen in our 15 years of existence. And initially we were puzzled as to what's going on. Is it that we're just becoming more dramatic or that this is really real, that all of these patients are coming in with, I mean, tubes everywhere and situations that are just beyond imagination. And it's just, it breaks your heart. And what we realize is if they are coming in from the outer rural areas, Oftentimes, perhaps these young people or children would probably have gone to the healthcare to look at certain unusual symptoms too late because they're too afraid of the COVID. Or the doctors have shorter hours of operating hours now in each of the public health clinics. And therefore, they didn't have their queue system going in. And there are too many hurdles to pass through. Because if you have early symptoms of cancer, perhaps you have fever. Perhaps you have certain symptoms that may identify you as COVID patient. And so you are too afraid that you may be isolated, you know, for 14 days or whatever. So these patients have come into the health system too late and now traveling from all over Indonesia and now having to rent a room because the shelters are not working. They have spent all their money on the transportation and renting a room in really the worst areas. So we now even are preparing for rental funds for some of these patients because the shelters are not in operation and buying little things to make sure that the house, you know, because some have no windows. One of our patients have wounds that are so bad. The father couldn't afford to buy a fan. So we started bringing in a little fan because that's all the electricity to support. So the situation is dire today. Now, when we started doing telemedicine and video calls, we, of course, we had this system where we would call you and if the patient seems the symptoms are okay, then we would not generate a video call. But if the symptom seems a little strange, then we would actually do a video call. We found out that none of our patients had this digital phone that allowed us to, <laughs> to actually video call in a clear way. So we had to send, you know, basically digital phone and started buying as cheap a digital phone as possible. And then an added problem turned out that uh, most of their homes are like what I described, no windows. So if you were to check the oral situation of the child, often with candida and everything else, you can't. So we started buying this YouTube lamp that is attached to the phone so that you know the child's mouth can actually be at least seen. So these are some of the challenges that you never think of. Do I see it as a negative thing? I think we've learned through the pandemic that there are a lot of things that we could have done earlier, perhaps we didn't do. So now learning through telemedicine and video calls, we can actually monitor a lot more patients. When they're stable, we don't have to actually mobilize physical home care. And so we can take care of a lot more patients now with great symptoms and our team needs to actually go out. That's one. Two, what other things that were most frightening when all of this happened? We talked about how we get a referral from the doctors from the hospitals and they remain the primary doctor. So when a child has blood works show that they're anemic or they're thrombocytopenia, they need to go back to the hospital for blood transfusion. Now, before all it took was for us to call the hospital and we know the emergency team and we know the board and we know that we could actually push the child through because team at the hospital knows that we know the grave symptoms. So they know that these are emergency. Otherwise we wouldn't have sent the child back to the hospital. During the pandemic, and especially during July to September this year, when the Delta variant went crazy, some of our patients would sit there for 
more than 24 hours in a little wheelchair that the hospital had given them, even though they're anemic and they were fainting and they just couldn't get in. The pandemic has changed the way our patients experience care. It has also changed the way our nurses provide care in the sense that till this day, they're still going out in full PPE, especially when they're doing procedures, mainly because we move into the most crowded areas in Jakarta. And so we know many people perhaps will not be able to quarantine themselves. If they were to quarantine themselves when they're tested positive, they wouldn't eat for that day or for the next 14 days, right? And unlike Singapore, where if you don't have anyone taking care of you, the government would deliver food. It doesn't happen like that in Indonesia. And so many people, even if they know that they have sort of symptoms and they're losing their sense of you know, taste and everything else, they would not go for tests because they know that you know, they can't afford to be quarantined. So our nurses are still going out in PPE and sweating like pigs when they go out because it's just really bad in a lot of these houses. It has trained us about the care that we need to observe in our office. Now, when people have a cold, they actually wear their masks and they're not, you know, sort of undoning their masks. Or when they have a cold, they just don't come into the office and we tell them to go home because it's so important now. It's easier for us to tell people things like that, whereas before it wasn't. TB is rife in Indonesia. And often I used to tell our nurses, please wear a mask when you're going into an untreated TB child or child with an untreated TB. They used to find it so difficult because it's just not acceptable for you to not show your face to a child. Now I feel safer because I know that when our nurses go into houses where there's untreated TB, they can keep themselves safe. So they're positive and they're negative. But I think overall, I would look at it as how do we look at this and learn from the lessons and so that as we move forward, we are a lot more tooled and skilled to keep our teams safe and therefore to keep our patients safe. Yeah, wow. You mentioned a lot of things and I definitely agree what you were saying about how quarantining and isolation isn't really something that everyone can achieve and do, especially in this climate. Social distancing to us is like second to nature at this point, but actually it's such a privilege for these kids and this community. There's so many problems that we actually cannot foresee or it's so far removed from our realities that it's happening to them. And yeah, it's really incredible that you are coming up with all these solutions to tackle the issue with not enough light because of the lack of windows and the fans and also they don't have phones to do digital calls. I'm really very, very impressed with just how creative and how persevering your team has been throughout this whole pandemic and still doing your best to provide care for these patients. It's really wonderful to hear. So I want to talk a bit more about children in Indonesia. So how does it actually differ in terms of pediatric palliative care, palliative care for children versus palliative care for adults? Because I think we mentioned a bit last week when we were speaking about how you need to embrace the whole family, right? When you treat children, you need to be more aware of how their different hormones in their teenage years and their childhood is really affecting their development and how they might be a bit stubborn sometimes. And it changes the way that healthcare providers communicate to them. So Maybe you can elaborate a bit more on that and our palliative care for children different from that of adults and that we should definitely be more aware of. You know, the quote where it takes a village to raise a child, it takes more than a village to look after a sick child. Pre-pandemic in the hospital, it's quite common to see a child who's sick with an entire village <laughs> comes in to visit that child. And then a doctor or nurse will find it difficult to figure out who who do I speak to? 
the reality with when we started out, and you know, I speak to teens here in Singapore where we talk about pediatric palliative care, and many who have been well versed in uh, adult palliative care would find it quite confronting when they start entering into the field of pediatric palliative care because you need to speak and work with the parents, and these parents are your partners. And so you have to make sure that you are aligned in your goals and they trust you enough to talk about it and that you can help them come to some sort of understanding of where their own emotions are vis-a-vis this child's illness, the diagnosis. What is their understanding? How are they feeling? At each part of the journey, then going from the first meeting, that tap cannot be broken. That link and that understanding cannot be broken. Because if that is broken, then you're walking with different goals for this same child who cannot make a decision, if we're assuming that this child is under five, who cannot make a decision for him or herself. Now, that's one factor. The fact that communication and relationship with the parents is key in the care of a child. Then you have a child is not just a child, right? A child under three, a child from three to seven, a child from seven to 10 have very different understanding, very different demands of their illness, of what they want. A child under five, when they're in pain, they scream. When they're not in pain, they ask for food, they play. We have a kid who she's still alive and she has hepatoblastoma, but she loves food, right? She's three and a half going to four now. And uh, she has this pocket money that her mother gives her. She lives in a shelter and she would basically go out when nobody looks at her and buy fried food. So that's a child under sort of, you know, seven, five or seven. Now, when you start looking at a child from a young person from 10 to 13, 14, the hormones are changing. They're beginning to ask questions. And they could be very quiet and they could be very angry. I think from a medical perspective, you look at anger and you say, okay, treat the anger with antidepressants, you know, whatever, especially for a child, someone with brain tumor. But oftentimes it's also fear, fear of what's going to happen to me. And anger as to why is this happening to me? when my friends are all going out shopping and they're beginning to have a girlfriend, boyfriend, and my body is basically completely falling apart. And shame. Uh, We had a a young girl who insisted on having a mirror just facing her as she got out of bed. And no matter how sick she was, right through almost the final days, she would still insist on going to the toilet herself. And she would not do anything in bed and would not have a bedpan. And every time she would stand up, she would look at a mirror and she would try to ruffle up whatever hair that she had left. So there are all of these perspectives that requires a healthcare provider like our nurses to know how to connect and to also have the humility when they see the patient initially and they'll say, okay, I think a male nurse would connect with this young person better. Or I think a nurse who has a teenage child would connect with this young person better. So they would actually know how to allocate between themselves when they know that the chemistry is not working. Because at the end of the day, that's the other thing that we have to emphasize. 
Our ego so often requires us to be light. And that's also where mindfulness comes into play when we, when we see a certain nurse who really buy everything for the child, you know, and really want to be loved and to be liked by this child. And we have to ask her or him, what is this all about? Or we have a nurse whose patients often under him would hang on for longer than their body could because they really didn't want to disappoint him because he was also hanging on to them to make sure that they don't die because he feels guilty. It took four years for us to work that out of his system. The kindest, the kindest nurse, he's still with us. You know, so all of these things I think are the lessons that we, we learn when caring for children. We've had kids where they would whisper to our nurse when we say to him or her, you can let go when you need to because your parents are also ready and we also speak to the parents to make sure that they say that. But this child would whisper to our nurses and say, what would my mom do when I'm gone? Who's going to look after her? And this kid, I think, was only like five or six years old, you know, at an age where you wouldn't think that they would think like that. So there are a lot of stories that makes you realize that children have a different language and they're wise. Even when you think that surely they wouldn't understand this, but they do. And so it takes a lot of humility, a lot of curiosity, a lot of walking in their shoes to try to, to, to do that work. But I think, you know, having just said that, I, I figure all of us should do that for whatever, for a patient at whatever age, right? That's incredible. Despite the language barrier, they can still communicate with her and be so forthcoming and vulnerable in front of her. I think we all aspire to be a doctor like that, you know, to really open your hearts and put in the work and time to really get to know your patients despite being tired regardless of circumstances they are your patients and they really need you you know at that moment yeah that's really inspiring to hear I was also wondering you know do you ever sometimes feel that there's nothing much you can really do to really alleviate the pain of these children and how do you overcome that to continue to serve the community and the children we have a child with HIV she's 11 Mother died a couple of years ago, so she lives with her father. And uh, father lost his left arm and leg at a train accident, so he has only his right arm and leg. And he works as a parking attendant on odd days because he has to share that position with another person and you know who needed the income also. When this child first came to us, she was always complaining of horrendous pain in the stomach and so she refused to eat because whenever she ate she would basically buckle down and uh, could not eat a few weeks after being under our care we decided to send her to the hospital to get a complete sort of checkup on whether there is gastric bleeding uh, intestinal problem and when she was then the doctor came back to us and said what she suffers from is hunger that you know, she hadn't eaten for a long time. So we said, well, yeah, she hadn't eaten for a long time because she's in pain. They said, no, she hadn't eaten for a long time. And then she was in pain because in the hospital, when she ate all of the five meals, whatever that we gave her, she had no pain and she was okay. So we said, okay. So she went home, we deliver food every meal. And it took us a long time because 
you know, she was given omeprazole and all of that to basically alleviate some of the gastric problem, but she refused to take the pills because she had stomach pain. So it took a while for us to get her to a stage where she was eating and she was well enough to even go out now because before she, she was so thin, she was so embarrassed going outside. In the last four weeks, she started going out and sometimes going out with her father because he sometimes go for this prosthetic sort of shop to allow people to see how he's using the prosthetic. So he's like a model. And so she would go out with him. So we were very happy looking like, okay, maybe it's time for us to discharge her and she's well enough. Now, as of last week, the whole problem started again. And it was only two weeks ago that she was well enough for her antiretroviral drugs to actually start for the doctor to decide, okay, she's now well enough for us to start on the medications that may save her life. But now she's complaining, she's not eating, she's in pain again, and the father can't take her to the hospital, and she's refusing to do that. Now, you know, when we send her to the hospital, the doctor says to us, why are you still looking after this kid? I mean, there's nothing you can do. She doesn't want to take the medications and her father can't be bothered. You should just discharge her. There's nothing else you can do, right? Now, it takes a village to look after a child, right? So whenever you tell our team, there's nothing else you can do for this child, our team will come together and have their own sort of discussion and work out what is the worst case scenario that will happen to this child if this continues without ARV, she will die. And she will die in a, you know, her whole body because HIV has a very, very horrible way of basically depleting everything that you've got. And the death is probably one of the ugliest and most horrendous death. And we looked after three kids in the last 15 years with absolutely no family members. So we see the deterioration of that body. So looking at her, the team said, it's not us, who else? In her worst moment, who's going to be there for her? No one her age asked to be born into this life. I think looking after children and some of the worst part of looking after children is actually not being able to stop them from walking into that train that is coming, crashing into them. Because with cancer, of course, there'll be pain. Of course, there's deterioration of the body. And also with cancer patients, thankfully, and this is not always the case, but thankfully, the family is still quite together. In the case where we're, for the population that we serve uh, patients with HIV, the family is very disintegrated. And often we deal with a grandmother who has to look after children, and she herself is too old to be looking after four children under the age of six. And each of them have problems, maybe with you know, HIV and all of the other symptoms. And when that happens, I think it's the social emotional pain that is often more devastating for our team. And I think for anyone to look at, because in any other circumstances, you would want to take this child and you know with ARB today, they should live. But without that whole support system, this child will die. But under what circumstances is also one of the most devastating for us to actually witness. Physical pain, you know you will keep trying. And maybe it's devastating for one or two days, but you'll keep trying to alleviate that. And it's also heartbreaking to see 
the psychosocial emotional pain that you can't help, especially for a child who can't help themselves. Everything is really inspiring to see how you seeing the children going through the pain breaks your heart and how you set up Rachel House to take responsibility for the lives of the children who are suffering and not letting them go through this ordeal by themselves because like what you mentioned if not you then who else will help these children so i was wondering also who inspired you the most throughout this journey to heal and serve the indonesian community and to find your place in making a difference in this world i have to choose our team we're so blessed to have some of the most amazing team of nurses who rain or shine they will still go out even today with uh, having to wrap up in all of the PPE going into the most hot humid and dusty area they will still go I, how many people would do that how many people would go out no matter what to look after children even when the children's parents sometimes don't even care as much i have to say they are the most inspirational team of people for me and i continue to learn every day from just the incredible commitment i think every day i am incredibly inspired by the children i mean just this week we have a child with nasal cancer and he has had the worst shingles around his face candida all over his throat but every day he would take a picture and show our nurse and say i'm getting better <laughs> and i mean this kid came to us four weeks maybe six weeks ago and we thought he wouldn't last for longer than a week because he was so confused he was almost like hallucinating and he kept talking about pain in the area that we could not understand then within a week or two he was hopping along and he has tinnitus you know it's ringing tone in his ear because of all of this cranial facial sort of nerve uh, that is being affected by his cancer and yet he would hop along a couple of houses down the road to go and see his grandmother but every day no matter what symptoms he faces he seems to be like this incredible warrior that just would not say die and um uh, he refused to go back to the hospital so he has us and nobody else and this is it but we keep in touch with his doctor to make sure that we can treat medication so children are the incredible inspiration we had a child who when he was dying he made his father promise that his father would gift to Rachel house the oxygen tank and the wheelchair that he had been using so that other children can use So every day these kids continue to inspire us. It's a privilege to work in palliative care because it's just the stories of patients when death is present is just astounding. Oh, those are really heartwarming stories from the patients even when death is present. And I love how the joy of these children despite their circumstances can inspire you to continue doing what you're doing and that's really amazing actually i was also wondering what would an ideal palliative care world look like to you for me it's easy that palliative care approach is not applicable just for patients who are dying or at the final stages of their illness but throughout 
that palliative care is an approach that is trained to all physicians and all doctors and nurses uh, understand the language because why is communication only important for patients who are dying? Why is communication only taught to doctors in palliative care? And why is pain and symptom management only important for patients at the final stages of their illness? Why is that not important throughout? Why is grief and bereavement talked about only at the end? We grieve when we're told we're sick. At moment of diagnosis, there is fear, there is grief, there is the world is being turned upside down. And yet no one is there to basically sit with you just for a moment and ask, how are you doing? And so why is what matters to patients only important when they're at the end of their lives, when it should be throughout? So it appears that care happens in palliative care, right? Because care for me as a lay person is knowing that my care professional, doctor and nurses really care about what matters, what is happening to me as a person, first and foremost. And so I think ideally palliative care approach is throughout the health system, throughout the health journey or care journey. But there's also one thing that I think that's really important. I think often we look at the question of how can we fix healthcare from the perspective of the patient. If I look at Rachel House, our team is the utmost important for us. We're a family. I always say to them, if you can't care for one another, then how can I expect you to care for the very people who you don't even know, right? And so first, care for one another. And that language of care is how we live. And so if you're in a hospital, if you're in a management, if you are head of a team, if you are a team player, if you're just a colleague, care for one another because you can't expect yourself to care for your patient if you don't feel cared by your colleagues, if you don't feel that this is a safe space to work in and that you matter as a person. And so if you feel that you matter as a person, you will make sure that your patient matters as a person. That, I think, is in an ideal world, I would love to see not only palliative care being practiced, but also care being practiced in the health system. Yeah, wonderful. I think I definitely agree with you that even here at Project Happy Apples, we always advocate for how palliative care shouldn't just be something that only the palliative care doctors do, or it's only being brought forward at the end of life when people are dying. It's really something that's the bare minimum almost, right, of care for any patient at any stage. It's all about communication and really understanding what your patient wants and checking in with them at every stage of the way. Like you said, grief and bereavement, when you hear about your illness at first, there is sadness, there's a lot of emotions going on, and it's all part of the process of really treating the patient and not just their disease. I also love what you said about your team and how building a really collaborative and caring environment for each other is also a necessity before you start caring for your patients because if you can't even work together how are you supposed to care for people that you don't really have a relationship with prior yeah so thank you so much for that and I just want to wrap up with one last question if people are interested to support Rachel House how best can they do that in their own capacities we have various sort of support that we need as an organization. One is, of course, funding, and any donations can be channeled through our website. So we have credit card system. So that's the easiest way, I guess, from Singapore. The other, from especially the care professionals and medical students, 
And pre-pandemic, we often ask for people who would be willing to spend some time with us. And this is not just for us to benefit, but also for an exchange of views. And I believe this benefits both sides. And for many of the medical students or even the liberal arts students who have come through Rachel House, often they've gone on to specialize in art therapy and different things for children. So we ask for volunteers with skills and uh, anyone with even um, technology skills, communication skills, we're happy to take the volunteering. And once again, on our website, uh, rachel-house.org, you'll be able to find volunteering and donation sites. Thank you, Lena. And with that, we will end it here. Lena, it was such a great honor to speak to you and to get to know you as a person. We have learned a great deal from you. And as medical students, we aspire to keep our hearts open always and to serve our future patients with great humility, empathy, and love just like you have done, showing up for the children and families at Rachel House every single day. Thank you so much for joining us today. We wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Nafia. Thank you so much. We love speaking to you today. For those who are listening, if you would like to support Rachel House and the beautiful work they do in whatever way you can, whether be it volunteering your time or making a donation, please head to rachel-house.org. You can also find them on social media at Rachel House Indonesia. Links in our episode description. Thank you so much.